You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Praise you, Spirit of the living God, given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, sent from the Father. You move among us now as the word of God is read and preached, and we invite you, Spirit, to illumine it, to make it clear to us, to unplug our stopped ears, to warm our cold hearts, open our eyes, open our ears and our souls so that we don't just hear your word today, but that we respond to it with the whole of our lives, giving you ourselves in obedience and love. pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, friends. So good to see you. Um, welcome, those of you who are here or online. We are finishing up this summer series um, today called Taste and See. We've been looking at, um, someone in the first service came after me after the first service and said, man, I thought this, service, this sermon series was going to be so dumb. Um, <laughs> but it's been really great. I'm glad to hear that. I hope that not too many of you think that. Um, but I think it's been awesome because it's made us realize just, you know, Richmond's a foodie town, who knew, uh, but the Bible's a foodie book, um, that this theme of eating and food and feasting is such a dominant theme in Scripture from the beginning to the end, as we're going to see today, and that it's, it's actually a very evocative image because God is actually inviting us through this metaphor to taste and see, not just know in our heads, but experience God's kindness, mercy, goodness, to us. That's what this is all about. So um, today we are coming to the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to hear Nick Jeffer read to us from Revelation chapter 19. So if you want to open your Bibles or open an app on your phone to Revelation 19, we're we're reading. This is uh, part of a great um, really storyline that you need to read the full three chapters. Maybe you can do that later. We're just drawing out part of the song that's being sung out of the, around the throne of God Chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. So let's hear God's word. I read from Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what sounded like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During the first 12 months of the pandemic, really the worst part of the pandemic, um, I had the privilege of getting to perform half a dozen weddings or so during that season. Um, And those were definitely different than any wedding that I had ever performed before. But they were also really beautiful in their own way. Um, These weddings were really small. Um, They were usually just like the closest family and friends. They were really simple. Um, they were really focused on the couple getting married. They'd lacked all of the accoutrements of the 
American wedding industrial complex <laughs> that often distracts uh, people from what the wedding's actually about. Um, and so, yeah, they were different, but honestly, they were some of the most meaningful weddings that I've ever gotten to be a part of. But there was thing, one, one thing, actually, that was missing and that I think everybody really missed during that period, and that was the party, the reception, the food, the feasting. You know, there's something about weddings that just makes people want to party. Uh, and it's not just a Western thing. It's not just a 21st century thing. I mean, this is timeless. This is throughout the ages. This is all cultures of the world. Uh, even during the pandemic, people found creative ways to do it. You know, people had Zoom parties, which are kind of lame, but hey, what else could we do? Um, they had outdoor parties. One couple that I married had a drive-by celebration where they just like threw gifts and stuff at the, at the couple. And when it comes to the union of a couple, our impulse, I think our human impulse is not just to sort of like clap politely um, or give a thumbs up or even just to have a polite supper. Our, our impulse is to just like take off our ties, tie them around our head, throw off our shoes, get on the dance floor and party. This is what we do when we want to celebrate, we feast. Feasting is the ultimate expression of joy. What is a feast? Have you ever thought about that? What, what, what actually defines a feast? I think at least these three things. First of all, to feast, feasting involves lots of food, lots and lots of food, like piles, surpluses of food, right? And feast food is not normally the same kind of food that you eat in everyday life, right? Like, so like at Thanksgiving time, kids, you eat food at Thanksgiving. The whole point of it is that you eat food at Thanksgiving that you normally wouldn't want to eat, like canned yams or something. Like you wouldn't normally want to eat this food during the rest of the year. So that's the first thing is that feasting involves lots of food. The second thing that feasting involves is lots of people, right? You need lots of people to feast. Uh, if you're sitting down, and eating a whole turkey and lots of exotic foods, and you're just by yourself on a Friday night watching Netflix, that's not a feast. That's just weird. Um, <laughs> feasting involves, feasting is communal, right? Feasting is collective. Feasting involves lots and lots of people. So feasting involves lots of food. Feasting involves lots of people. And then third, feasting always involves joy. You're celebrating something. You're marking something like a birthday or a holiday or a special occasion. Feasting marks an event that everybody wants to just rejoice in. So here we are, Revelation 19. We're looking at the very end. It's a picture of the end of history. A picture of the end of the world, if you will, of all that history is moving toward. And what is it that we see at the end of human history? A party. A feast of raucous joy. What does this mean? What does it mean that the Christian hope is a feast, a party, a celebration of joy? What does this say about the God that we're worshiping here today? What does this say about human life? and the purpose of life? What does this say about us and how we're supposed to live in the world? That our destiny is a crazy, beautiful party, a feast of rejoicing.
That's what I want to unpack with you today as a culmination of this series. To do that, we want to sort of look at this theme of feasting throughout the whole Bible. And so I'm just going to do a quick review. And this is actually kind of a review of what we've learned this whole summer, because we're going to touch on a lot of these stories. So I'm going to call, I just, I'm calling this little survey, um, food and feasting from beginning to end. Food and feasting from beginning to end. Okay. So think back to the very beginning of the Bible. Kids, you can do this with me because you have better imaginations than the adults. Think back to the very beginning of the Bible. God makes this beautiful garden. And if you remember, the Bible begins with food. It says in chapter 2, verse 9, Out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Good for food. I mean, just think about it. God could have made us as human beings to just be sustained by, I don't know, twigs or rocks or dirt. But instead, God makes things that are good for food. He creates a culinary environment in creation that can produce green curries and egg frittatas and fettuccine alfredo and country-style donuts. You know, he makes a creation that can produce such good, yummy, beautiful things. Feasting, that's the, that's the vision that we get in the very beginning of the Bible is God and humanity sitting together around the table, feasting on the goodness of God and the goodness of creation. That's a vision of perfection, a vision of shalom, beauty, as God intends human life to be. Human and, human and, God's and human feasting together, my goodness. Well, does that last very long? No, right? Very soon, we discover that humanity doesn't want to do this. The first act of rebellion in the Bible is an act of eating. They don't want God's goodness. They want something else instead. And so humans are expelled from the garden. They're basically cut off from the banquet table that God has set for them. But of course, God won't have it. He, doesn't, he wants to bring humanity back to the table with him again. God promises again and again throughout the scriptures that God and humanity will one day feast together again. And we have little hints of it throughout the Old Testament. So kids, I don't know if you remember when God rescued his people out of Egypt and he brought them through the Red Sea. You remember that? And it was an amazing miracle. And he brought them through the Red Sea and then he brought them up onto the mountain. This is Exodus 20 through 24. And in Exodus 24, he brings Moses and his friends up to the mountain. And what does God do? He sets a feast for them. He sets the table and God and humanity sit down together again at the table. It's like God is saying, I'm restoring that feast that was lost. I'm bringing you back to my table. Then later when God's people are established in the promised land, which is the land of milk and honey, hear the, the culinary abundance there. Um, God's people, even though God establishes them in this beautiful place, again, their hearts stray and they turn away from God and they turn to idols and they reject and rebel against God and they fall into ruin and get overcome by their enemies and get taken into exile. And Isaiah, many of the prophets lament this, and Isaiah uses this, I will say, very disgusting image to describe what God's people have done in Isaiah 28, verse 7. And I'm sorry, parents, this is very gross, although your little boys will probably love it. It says, God's people stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision for all their tables are full of filthy vomit with no place left. Super gross. It's this graphic image of what happens when we reject God's feast. We would rather spread our tables with vomit 
than feast at the table of God. But again, that's not the end of the story. God refuses to leave us in misery. He, he makes a promise that he will clean the filth off of our tables and he will spread a feast again for his people that is too good to be true. So he gives this new vision in Isaiah 25. And this is what it says. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a what class? A feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meat, the finest of wine. This is no three buck chuck, Trader Joe's. This is like the finest of wines, right? On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. You see this, this is God is, God is sending. He said, this is what I'm gonna do. I, the Lord Almighty, will be the host of the banquet and I will set the table. And do you see what is on the menu? The richest of foods, the best of wines, the best of meats. I mean, imagine the most amazing meal that you have ever eaten and multiply, multiply it by a billion. That's the feast the Lord says he will set for us. And notice what is not on the menu. What's not on the menu? Death is off the menu. Why? Because it says the Lord has swallowed it up himself. Tears, tears are not on the menu because it says the Lord has wiped them away. Shame and disgrace is not at the table because it says the Lord has removed them. This is the most beautiful, powerful image of God promising as the destiny for all peoples that he will bring us back to the table and he himself will be the host. About 700 years after this prophecy was given, the world begins to taste this feast in the person of Jesus. From the beginning, Jesus' mission is clear. He's bringing people back to God's table. Many of his best stories, like the prodigal son, are about the father welcoming the wandering child back to the feast, back to the party. So many of his miracles, as we've noted this summer, involve food. Jesus' first miracle, y'all, was making that amazing wine at a wedding party. It's like he's showing the world that the true master, the true bringer of joy is finally here. The night before Jesus dies, he gathers his friends for a very somber feast, Passover feast, in which he breaks the bread and pours out the wine as a sign of his own sacrificial life given for the sin of the world. And as we saw last week in the book of Acts, the early church continues this practice of feasting and eating together as one of the primary ways that they live out the gospel and invite people in. So it's no surprise, right? We've just surveyed the entire Bible from Genesis right up to the New Testament, the book of Acts. It's no surprise that when we look at the very end of the story, what do we see? A feast, a banquet, a wedding feast, the ultimate fulfillment of this vision of Isaiah. It is a restoration of Eden, God and humanity brought back to the table together. And this is an amazing table where the, the food is rich and the wine flows and death is banished and our bodies are restored and the world is mended and our souls are satisfied and the richest of food, delighting in God's favor and love forever. Christians are the most peculiar people for a lot of reasons. But one of them is this. 
that when we believe, what do we believe about the end of the world, per se? We believe that the end of history comes not with a comet or fireball, not with a zombie apocalypse. You know, we don't even believe that the world will end with, you know, some disembodied heavenly existence or being dropped into the universe like a teardrop. What we believe that we are anticipating and looking forward to at the end of history is the greatest party that our God himself will throw. What does this mean for life? What does this mean if this is our hope, if this is our future? What does this mean for the way that we live life right now? Well, let me just offer a few uh, suggestions. First of all, I think it means that we're called to remember and live out the truth every day that true life, real life, is life with God. True life is life with God. This is a theme of this whole series, that God invites you to the table, which means that God invites you into deep relationship with himself. The reason why meals are used throughout scripture is because at the heart of a meal is friendship, communion, family, relationship. God wants that with you. And we see here at the end of the Bible that our future is not just a meal with God, but a wedding banquet, a wedding festival. And who is the bride? Who is the beloved that's being celebrated? You. We, we are the church that... God, God is celebrating being reunited with us as that lost relationship with him has been finally and fully restored. Y'all, that is amazing. And so what this means is this, is that that is our future, this deep union and communion with God, God and humanity, that is our future. But the good news is, is that you don't have to wait until the end of the world to experience that that already now you can experience deep relationship and communion and friendship with God through Jesus and the gift of his spirit even now. And I really want you to hear this, um, especially those of you who think of yourself as a Christian and maybe you come to church, but God is really not a significant part of your life. I know that there's many of us who maybe are in that category. I want you to hear this, that What God is offering you in Jesus is not religion, is not a list of rules, is not a way to make your life better or happier, is not, those things are just too small. What God is actually offering you in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is a shared life with the Trinity, deep communion with the eternal and everlasting God that you don't have to live alone. You don't have to stumble through this world by yourself trying to figure things out with your own strength and thoughts and agency, that you can actually live every day of your life in deep communion and relationship with the God who loves you. That's what's being offered to you. How do you get that? Well, the good news is, is that it's already been given to you. Jesus Christ died and rose to reunite you with the God that you were separated from. And it's just simply a gift to receive. Maybe you need to receive that today. But it's not just a gift, it's also a task. It's something that you can work on and cultivate, just like any relationship, to learn how to live your life in relationship, in communion with God. How do we do that? Well, one of the things that we do is by coming to worship every week. We learn every Sunday when we come to worship God, we are learning to reorient our lives around God with him at the center of everything. In the body of Christ, we learn how to study and meditate on the scriptures. Uh, we learn how to pray. 
in communion with God. We learn how to live not independently, as the world around us calls us to live, but dependently on the God who loves us. Um, Just speaking personally, one thing that has really helped me live my life in deeper communion with God is by listening diligently to God's voice of love. Um, As someone who struggles with um, all my life with shame and worthlessness and who is very driven to perform and to prove my worth and status to other people, um, it has been a very important discipline for me to return to hear that voice of love of God saying, I delight in you, you are my beloved. God, that is true of you now in Jesus Christ. So every morning I do this, I just sit in a chair for a few minutes and I quiet myself in the presence of God and I simply receive God's voice of love for me. You are the beloved. And for me, learning how to listen to that voice and to not listen to the voice of condemnation and shame enables me to live in closer and closer communion with the God who loves me. So my simple question to you is, what are you going to do this fall? What are you going to do in response to what you've heard this summer to live your life with God? Maybe learn how to read and study scripture. Maybe learn how to pray. Maybe ask someone to teach you how to cultivate a relationship with God. Maybe to show up to worship more often. What are you going to do? Because true life is life with God. Second, I think we see from this amazing theme of feasting is that true life is life with others. Remember what we said, the second ingredient that makes a feast is a whole lot of other people. And so we see what this tells us is the meaning of life is not just about a restored relationship with God, but it's also living in deep communion and community with other people. That's our future. Our future is feasting and rejoicing with each other and with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the table. And so the best way to begin doing that now and practicing for it is Just get going, you know, start partying now with other people, (laughs) right? Uh, We've we've talked about all this this all summer, that the Christian life is only possible when it is lived out in community with others. And as good as it is to see each other once a week on a Sunday morning, we just can't live the kind of communal life that God envisions by just showing up to a worship service once a week. So how are you going to take steps in response to what you've heard this summer? How are you going to take steps to live your life in greater community with others. And remember, this is also an invitational community we're a part of. It says in verse 9, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's an invitation, he's saying to John, the writer. Get it out there. And who is invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, you may ask? Well, in in, in two chapters later, in verse 17 of chapter 22, the angel says, whoever is thirsty... They're invited. Let them come. Whoever is hungry, they're invited. Let them come. Whoever wishes, whoever wants to take the free gift of the water of life. In other words, anybody who is hungry, thirsty, anybody who wants to, anybody who wants to taste of God's rich feast, they can come. Do you know anybody like that? I love um, Murray and Lauren Withrow. Do any of you guys know Murray and Lauren Withrow? Are they here today, by any chance? Oh, there they are. Hey, Murray. Sorry, sorry to embarrass you. But um, how many years have you been married, Murray? 14. So 14 years ago, um, I had the privilege of performing Murray and Lauren's wedding, and they had the most unusual and remarkable reception because they just invited everyone. 
Literally, everyone. <laughs> they said, anyone who wants to party with us on this great day of celebration can come. They said it to the church. They said it to their neighbors. They said it to, you know, to the neighborhood as we walked on over. On, and here we are outside in the park celebrating. The music is loud. People are just walking up. One guy just walked up and said, what is this? A party. Can I come? Sure. Come on. <laughs> there were rich people and poor people, white people, black people, people from the suburbs, people from the city, uh, homeless people, successful people, all kinds of people just gathered. And this, I love that. Murray and Lauren have taught me so much about this because they open their doors to all and say, everybody come. And this is what we do as Christians. We are the bride preparing for the feast, but there's a whole lot of people invited who aren't there yet. And we say, come. There's 100 million people in the U.S. who have never been to church and have no intention to go there. Who are they? They're your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues. Jesus says, come. We're people of hospitality who want as many friends and neighbors to be there, to be sitting with us at the table. So what, as you think and plan for this fall, what step are you going to take towards invitational community? Because true life is life with others. One last thing. True life is life with God. It's life with others. And finally, it is a life of joy. The image of our future here is such a powerful image of hope that our future is a future of everlasting joy. And what that means is that Christians... Perhaps maybe, differently one than what you thought, Christians are people who love to celebrate, who love to party, people who can feast and toast. And we don't party like, you know, hedonists who say, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We say, eat and drink because we're going to be doing this forever, right? We're people who rejoice, as it says in verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give God glory. This may um, sound challenging to some of you. Um, I personally am of a quite melancholic disposition, and joy is a rather difficult discipline for me. And there's maybe some of you who are actually carrying very, very heavy burdens, and the world is full of reasons to be downcast, and our personal lives are just full of things that make us suffer and make our hearts break. And I get that, but celebrating God and his goodness does not depend on good circumstances and happy feelings. Paul and Silas saying in prison, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, who saw his family and society crumble around him, said, my soul is downcast, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the great Lord's great love, I am not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. So yes, I know that many of you are really suffering, but there is something deeper than all of our sorrows. There beats deeper than our sorrows the unbroken pulse of God's joy, that will one day break out upon the world. To set your heart on that joy means that you orient your life around that ultimate joy that is coming. And you choose, according to that joy, how you will respond to every moment. You look for God's beauty and joy in every circumstance, no matter how bleak. Because of Jesus, we can be people of defiant joy, who take the sin and suffering of the world very, very seriously, but who nevertheless always carry with us the secret of the world's coming feast. So we always hope. We always rejoice. We never give up. I just want to close by telling you a story. It's a story written by um, a woman in Denmark. Actually, she went by the pen name Isak Denison, um, but she wrote it in Denmark in the early 20th century, and it's called Babette's Feast. And it takes place um, in 18th century Denmark, and it's about a little village um, of 
strict, joyless, religious people who are austere and frugal and they hate fun. And Babette is a refugee from Paris who happens to be a very accomplished chef, but she loses everything and flees to this little village in Denmark. And for 12 years, she serves as a housekeeper to the villagers, cooking the villagers the very plain and bland food that is their preference. One day, though, Babette, who had had a friend back in Paris who kept renewing her lottery ticket every year, <laughs> finds out that she won the lottery in Paris, 10,000 francs, which is a lot of money in the 18th century. And so what do you do if you're a Parisian refugee living in a terrible little town in Denmark when you win the lottery? Well, she decides to cook a feast. And so she takes this money and she prepares the most abundant, opulent, over-the-top feast, a seven-course meal of turtle soup and caviar and sour cream and champagne and quail and puff pastry and foie gras with truffle sauce and endive salad paired with Pinot Noir and rum-soaked sponge cake with figs and cherries, cheese and fruit and cognac. I mean, it is like over-the-top, ridiculous, excessive abundance. And she sets the table and serves the feast for the villagers. And they come to the table, and at first they are very worried <laughs> because this violates all of their values. It violates all of their frugality and austerity. They, but out of politeness to Babette, they begin to taste the food. And one by one, they begin to smile. <laughs> and then one by one, they begin to laugh. And over the course of the meal, the community begins uh, to put aside old animosities and they begin to confess their sins to each other and they experience reconciliation. And after the seven-course meal, the evening ends with all of them hand-in-hand hand around the village fountain singing and celebrating. They are transformed by the feast. And after the meal, two women run into the kitchen. They find Babette, who's washing up, and they say, Babette, we will remember this evening for the rest of our life after you have gone back to Paris. But Babette will not go back to Paris because the meal she cooked cost everything, 10,000 francs. This is who we are. This is who we are. We're people of the feast. We wait for the banquet table, the wedding supper of the lamb, where the host, the slain lamb himself, has spent everything, absolutely everything, to set the table of joy for us. And even now, as we wait, we are people who set that same table for others, spending ourselves, spending our time, spending our money to give others a taste, just a taste, of the joy that is ours and that is coming for us in Christ. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I want to give you a moment to reflect on that and to respond to what you've heard this summer. If you just turn over your bulletin to the back side, there's a little response page here. You know, the book of James says that the person who listens to God's word and doesn't do anything is like a person who looks at their face in the mirror and forgets it. The word of God is meant to be responded to. And so I especially want you to think about the invitations you've received from God this summer. And I especially want you to think about what are you gonna do to cultivate a deeper life with God and a deeper life with others this fall? There's some examples there at the bottom. 
There's a place where you can write what you're going to do there on the left. There's a, you can even write when you're going to do it and who you're going to share it with so that someone else knows. But let's just take a minute or two and write down how we're going to respond to this wonderful invitation that God has given us to live in deeper communion with him and with others. So let's do that now. Thank you, Lord, that you have set the table for us, that at the cost of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have set a banquet of joy. This is our future, but it is a future we can already experience in the present. So help us, God, to have the power from your spirit to follow through on whatever commitment we've made today. Help us to live life that is truly life, life with you, life with others for the joy of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.